Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. One of my early boyhood memories of a previously unexplored sanctuary occurred only a short distance from our farmstead on a dirt road in southwest Iowa. It was a silent, undisturbed wetland, a 20-acre space of economically worthless land. It drew me there because I wanted to apply my newly learned trapping skills after watching my father manage his trap line. I was determined to become the Daniel Boone of the modern era. I walked out of the driveway just before dawn, traps slung over my shoulder, and headed south to the wetland. It was one of those crisp fall mornings, and every sound was distinct. Bird sounds echoed off the road toward me when I topped the last hill. Conversational notes of mergansers, wood ducks, mallards, and geese talking and laughing ricocheted into my ears. I crossed the rusted fence bordering the wetland and entered a foreign land. Mounds of soil claimed by patches of reeds and cordgrass stood above pools of water like unbridled acne on nature's pockmarked skin. Hopscotching on mounds of soil, my foot slipped, throwing me forward. My gloved hands dove into the muck below and sank deeper and deeper until my face entered the murky water. The water tasted stale with the aroma of sweat-stained socks that should have been washed three days earlier. My hands, covered in a dark, creamy sludge, smelled revolting at first until I remembered Dad's description of nature's perfume. So this is your host, Mary Swander, and I am sitting here in the Ag Art Studio talking to Russ Mullen, an emeritus agronomy professor from Iowa State, and to Jill Mortensen, who have come up with the idea of sanctuaries. And Russ, can you tell us what is a sanctuary? Well, sanctuaries to me uh, refer to places in the landscape that can provide a lot of different services, uh, food, a place for protection, a place where wildlife that we can see in the wildlife that we can't uh, can go to find food or just a, a feeling of protection. It's kind of a rest stop on wildlife's traverses of, of across nature. So I think it's, we think of sanctuaries 
ourselves as places that are mentally relaxing to us, and I feel that it's the same way with wildlife as well. And Joe, why do we need such places? These are, we're talking about land sanctuary. Sanctuary is a real resonant word. It has um, spiritual implications. It goes all the way back to the Greeks and to the Romans. But why do we in 21st century America need sanctuaries at this point of our history? Well, I think not only for diversity of plant and animal life, but provides a mental sanctuary for the humans on the earth when we see a landscape that is a monoculture, it's not as interesting or as uh, revitalizing to us mentally, physically, spiritually as, say, a more diverse landscape. There's a lot of attention now being paid to getting back to nature, rewilding, forest bathing. Um, and so I think there's an increased interest in the public at large in preserving wild spaces for both animals, insects, and humans. That's great. And Russ, I know um, you were one of my colleagues at Iowa State, and you taught history of agriculture. Could you, you don't need to go all the way back to uh, the beginning of the world, but can you just trace back kind of the milestones of when our landscape here in the Midwest, the changes that took place um, through the ages, and then bring us up to date in the last 75 years, why that's in particularly uh concerning and different from anything we'd done before. Yes. <clears throat> well, we're, we were in a diverse area centuries ago when the land was discovered, and we happened to be in the tall grass prairies, uh, and to the west of us, it was short grass prairies. To the east of us, uh, we had more rainfall, so you had more timber. And as we settled the country, uh, Wood was very valuable for, for cooking and building, and we denuded forest, and they grew back. Um, but also now we're denuding forest again through, for different uh, reasons. So in Iowa, it was a vast area, tall grass prairies, um, waterways covered with brush and trees, packets of brush along the lowlands, um, and then as we developed mechanical power, our capacity to remove a 200-year-old tree was available. And today, you can do it with mach huge machinery in 10 minutes. So as we progressed in mechanization, it increased production of agriculture but also uh, increased mechanization allowed us to deforest areas. Uh, we were a major flyway for, for animals because of all our wetlands. And then we developed tiling and that increased the wealth of the Midwest considerably because what was waterways and 
uh, wetlands became prime farm farmland. So we changed our habitat completely in Iowa for agriculture. And in the last uh, years, machinery has gotten bigger. Lawnmowers have gotten bigger. Tractors are bigger. We have more wealth in in farming than we did 60, 70 years ago. And we have tractors now bigger than the bulldozers of my dad's era. So we have the capacity and the wealth to really change landscape, which what I've seen over my dad's life, lifetime and my lifetime, it's uh, discerning for me to realize that, that this could continue in the future even more than in my lifetime. Yeah, um, you mentioned that gives us a great overview of what has happened. And then there are some particulars you mentioned, for example, tiling. And it's interesting to me, you know, I have a lot of friends that say, I heard there's like pipes under the ground all over Iowa. What is with this? And I said, what are you talking about pipes? And, you know, I thought they were talking about pipeline. And, uh, and they said, you know, that they're, they're like moving the water around and, and ding tiling. And in the piece that you read in the opening is a wonderful description of a wetland. And many of those wetlands have disappeared because we're able to drain them. So can you just talk a little bit more about some of these specific things that have changed, and not only the, the machinery, but the tiling? Yes. Uh, my younger, this land, this wetland I, I talked about, I read about, uh, was important to me in my boyhood years, but my younger brothers don't remember it uh, because it was tiled when they were very young. And uh, tiling improves the productivity of farmland, no question, because it removes excess water, which allows more oxygen in the soil. You get better root growth. You get better yields. So tiling definitely makes land more economically productive. But tiling, putting these underground perforated plastic tiles three foot below the sur surface, takes away a lot of surface water and gr gravitational water, and it they go directly to our streams. So it, it does affect our streams, too. Um, and... Uh, Chemicals can enter tiling water a lot quicker, uh, whereas um, wetlands held the water, let silt uh, settle out and any chemicals. So wetlands served as kind of a filter for our water. We've lost basically 95% of our wetlands in Iowa, and there was no laws against draining a wetland. You can do it in three days uh, with tiling. So, and if you look at the amount of tiling going on now, uh, it's still draining. It's still big business. So I see more tiling. Any kind of wet areas um, 
that are under crop production will get tiled out. So unless we preserve some areas in our farm uh, landscape, we won't have any wetland kind of sanctuaries for those kind of animals and birds that depend on that. That's right. I've read a lot of um, original settler diaries and some of their writings, and uh, almost all of them describe the birds that flew over uh, the Midwest, especially Iowa. And it sounds like a cliche, but it clearly comes through as a true fact that the skies were black, just blackened with birds. And sometimes they would they were so thick that they would, you know, darken the sun. I regained my footing and stood transformed into a swampland rat, a sodden, furless animal standing in a strange world only one half mile from where I lived. Slowly and quietly, I moved through the marsh looking for good places to set traps. Waterfowl, although wary, didn't fly and seemed to accept me. A muskrat perched on a mound 25 yards away stared at me and then leisurely entered the pool of water, disappearing beneath the surface, but ripples showing me his direction. I began focusing not only what was in front of me, but on the landscape around me. And so what I think some of the things we're losing is not only the landscape, the um, wildlife, but we're also losing our imagination. We don't have those images in our heads anymore of the way things were um, many years ago, or what, what even could become of the future? What are the possibilities? So I'm gonna turn to you, Jill. What do you see as some of the possibilities with sanctuaries? Well, um, like I said, I think that um, it's beneficial to um, animals, insects, and humans to have not a monoculture to look at. And what's that mean exactly, a monoculture? A monoculture would be a landscape where one single plant species is predominant, like a cornfield, for instance. Right. And what... Um, we even have monocultures in urban um, landscapes. Everybody has a lawn, right? And it's supposed to be mowed. And, you know, we have all these concepts in our heads or even city governments um, impose them upon people. So I'm thinking, what are the possibilities for urban people that are landowners? What kind of sanctuary could they create? And then I'm thinking also, okay, what if someone says, you know, this is all for wealthy, privileged people who have land. What if I'm living in an apartment? Is there anything that I can do to create a sanctuary in that situation? Absolutely. If you have a patio or a balcony, you can have um, flowers in pots for bees and hummingbirds. Um, 
herbs that you can use flower, and bees love them. For instance, um, I see a lot of bees on oregano blossoms or um, basil blossoms. So not only food for humans, but food for um, other species as well. And it doesn't have to be a fancy pot if you have an empty bucket that you get at a big box store. You can use that. So um, anything that anybody can do, you don't have to be a landowner to create a sanctuary, not only for yourself, but also animals. Excellent. Now, Russ, I'm hearing little voices in my head, people saying, if I reestablish the wetlands on my farm, that's going to cost me money because that land isn't going to be productive and I'm not going to be selling those acres of corn that I would plant there. What answer would you have to those voices? Well, one thought I had is if you peer in the future, every generation has their idea of what was when they were young. And when you lose landscape diversity, you set a new norm and the new generation gets used to it. So there's, it, it, it's a progressive loss of diversity in, in our landscape. And that's kind of what worries me long term because I think we'll see a, even a much greater loss of diversity as we mechanize. The area was alive with movement everywhere. The surface was dancing, undulating in synchrony with animal sounds. A white wing flashed ahead, another to my left. Two wings lifted and vanished. Water rippled. Variations glistened in silver, something swimming below in the shadow of the reeds. Iridescent shards of green flashed from mallards swimming in and out of yellow shafts of sunrise, piercing the marsh. Ducks, adorned with red, purple, and orange feathers, silently glided and circled in do-si-do -si -do fashion among the vegetation. Cactails, reeds, and sedges nodded and swayed in the morning breeze, hiding shy tenants inside. Small, playful birds sang different notes and played tag among the taller reeds. Geese and ducks conversed in deeper tones about serious topics while watching and scolding their offspring. I smelled the faint pungent odor of muskrats and mink, spotted their runs and dens. This place was a kingdom with districts and cities of happy, contented creatures, some that you could see, some that you couldn't. Funny on the way home, I looked back from the hill overlooking the marshland. I couldn't see movement, I couldn't feel it, I couldn't hear it, and I couldn't smell it. The place looked quiet, serene, and abandoned, like a dream that I had imagined. So you see, uh long-term value in 
employing sanctuaries in in terms of the diversity, but again, also the diversity of the imagination in in seeing a future, um, recognizing what had been here. I, I, you know, I remember taking geology in college, and it just opened up a whole new world to me. I was like, wow, look what the wildlife was like here in this state in these prehistoric times. I think, wow, they had mammoth elephants and all of these things that, you know, with my little slice of life, I had no spark of recognition of, you know, until I read it in the book. Okay, so if we were to encourage people to create sanctuaries on their land, in their apartment, on their balcony, wherever it would be, how could we promote this idea? Um, I think there might be two ways, one through the arts and then one through um, policy. And so, Jill, what ideas might come to your mind through the arts that we could promote sanctuaries? Oh, I would start maybe with um, in some sort of a community organization where children are involved to um, create murals, um, different um, art pieces of artwork. They can take them home, share them with their families, say, let's plant a garden or let's plant some flowers. Um, and then I think, too, if you can get people involved um, on a community level, then it becomes more of a grassroots movement. And pretty soon it becomes the norm for everybody to have a garden, a flower bed, um, whether you live in an urban setting or a more rural setting. Um, it just becomes more of a normal everyday occurrence, whereas now it's the lawn is kind of a, just a manicured place to be. Um, so I think it starts at a very basic level and you build from there. And I think that's ultimately how we change policy in city government, um, state government, and national government. Oh, that's excellent. And so, Russ, I know I'm sending you off on an Eggert's residency to uh, White Rock Conservancy, which is a 5,600-acre um, preserve that used to be farmland, and now it's becoming restored prairie. And you want to actually write up a proposal for some policy. What might be in that proposal? Well, I think there's a couple things, uh, challenges in, in looking at sanctuaries in our urban area and in our rural area. And the first challenge is to value them ethically. And I think the arts can help us do that and make us more aware. The, the other thing I think is we need to value them economically. And we don't have to do much, I don't think, to do that. Uh, for example, three years ago, I wanted to build a pond using state support, county support, and the engineer that designed the pond put it below where I ended up 
building it myself because of a rule. Uh, there was a farmstead there 80, 90 years ago. I, uh, as long as we've owned the land, I've never, nobody ever lived there. there there's remnants. But he wanted to put the pond, uh, uh, you know, 500 yards down, right in the middle of a timber. There's probably at least 2,000-year-old old-growth trees. And I argued, what kind of impact would that be on animals to take out that kind of growth? And he, he wouldn't relent. That was the rule. So we have rules that protect anthropological sites, but we have no rules to pr protect uh, a hillside of, of trees because it's not valued economically unless you value it for farmers that do value sanctuaries ethically you'll find that they are providing that so i think uh, an example for instance old farmsteads when you drive across the midwest in some landscapes the only trees left are old abandoned farmsteads well our government actually discourages leaving that old farmstead as a sanctuary because a tax on old buildings are no longer used. What if they gave tax forgiveness on, on that farmstead as a sanctuary? It's a little thing. It, it doesn't amount to a lot of dollars. We, in this state, we have used millions of dollars to support our corn and soybean industries and using corn for, for ethanol. Um, so we have spent millions on promoting corn and soybeans. A fraction of that could reward farmers for leaving areas of sanctuaries um, in, in farmland landscapes. Same thing with a urban area. I think city planners uh, could easily say, oh, you have a 1% of your yard in a diverse sanctuary, we'll give you $10 credit or whatever that might be on, on your taxes. All of a sudden, then it validates your ethical beliefs that sanctuaries are important. And why are they important? To provide, again, a sanctuary for all those animals you see or don't see. Uh, CRP uh, practices help diversity, and that's an example of where we can promote CRP as a sanctuary. When we did, did that on my farm, it's a joy to see all the butterflies and, and birds. Uh, they're happy, they're singing, and it, it's just a nice place to, to be. It'd be nice to reward that uh, through small changes and in laws and regulations that reward and protect farmland and sanctuaries for the people that value that. Otherwise, the landscape has no voice. And, and when you own land in our economic system, uh, you have the ability to change the landscape drastically with no regard to the impact it has on wildlife. And I think the idea of rewarding people for building sanctuaries, 
micro, mini sanctuaries, macro sanctuaries, depending on whether you own a balcony or a, a lawn or 160 acres. Uh, it would be a, a nice thing. And long term, you know, 100 years from now, I think it'd make a huge difference in what species we see. You know, we don't drive through large areas of Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas and see a lot of diversity. So there, there's a lot of um, value in trying to preserve the diversity, not only for human enjoyment, but wildlife enjoyment. Absolutely. So stay tuned, everyone. Uh, Ag Arts is joining forces with Russ Mullen and Jill Mortensen, and we hope to promote a sanctuary movement in our state and beyond and formulate some, Russ is working on some uh, uh, policy proposals, and we're going to supply the art. And so um, you'll hear more from us as the months go by, and we'll have some bits of action probably on our website, things that you can do and that won't take much money and won't take much time, just in small ways. And that's what we're talking about today. Each of us doing small things that add up to large things that move us toward a better future. I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. 
Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time.